Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the show, The Culture and Ancestry of Joseph Smith. Today's episode is about the ancestors of Joseph Smith and who they were. We will also talk about what kind of cultural and societal climates that the Smiths lived in as well. Also, please be patient with me as I figure out this whole podcasting thing. Hopefully the sound quality and the background noises will go away as I figure out how to edit better. As for now, lots of the noises of my fire and the street I live on are still here, and you're still going to hear them in this episode. And I'm still learning how to get rid of them. So today we are going to start by tracing back the ancestors of Joseph Smith as far as we can. I said, look, little Kurt Bush, I am the gardener here, and I know what I want you to be. I'm going to take a text, and I take the word of my text, the law of divine witnesses. I forewarn you, this will be a rather long talk. I'm an old man in early June of this year, the first presidency announced. That a revelation had been received by President Spencer W. Kimball, extending priesthood and temple blessings to all worthy male members of the church. After he received this revelation, he presented it to his counselors, who accepted it and approved it. So it's important to trace back the ancestors of the boy Joseph Smith Jr. for a couple of reasons. There are plenty of people out there trying to dissuade people from following the LES Church because they think that Joseph Smith was an imposter. These arguments are not very well known today in the church because the Utah church has done a decent job of not letting those ideas take hold in Utah when they moved out there. If we want to know whether he was a true prophet or not, I think we have to answer at least some of these questions so that people can be satisfied either way. There's only a few that we will even bring up in this episode, but during the time of Joseph Smith, these arguments were prevalent. First of all, many people in his day dismissed him as a charlatan because of his family tree. The ancestors of the Smiths were restless in that they moved around an inordinate amount of times in their search for land and wealth and success. Second is that they said that Joseph's family was delusional, and Joseph Smith's visions were just extensions of the family already suffering from hallucinations. Third is to show how money-crazy they were, and no matter what they invested in, they could never come out ahead. Those are the main arguments that are going to be discussed in this episode as we talk about the family of the boy Joseph. The farthest back we can trace the lineage of Joseph Smith on his father's side is only a few generations. Many critics of the church use the ancestry of Joseph Smith to discredit his visions and revelations as phony and something his family was doing long before he came around. While it is true that both his parents claimed to have revelations and divine inspirations before Joseph was born, it is also true that the ancestors of Joseph Smith were very influential in their communities before the birth of his parents. On his father's side, we can go back as far as Robert Smith, who immigrated from England to America in 1638, long before the country was free from English rule. I haven't looked into much of the modern genealogical research of Joseph Smith, but for a long time this was as far back as anybody knew about, but that might have changed with more modern inquiries. But it doesn't really seem necessary to go back any further than that because it's just not part of the story being told in this episode or in this series. So Robert Smith had a son on January 26, 1666, and named him Samuel, a name that would continue to be used in the family for generations. This Samuel moved to a town called Topsfield, 
and was apparently a well-respected person in the community because he held several public offices while there. This first Samuel also had a son whom he named Samuel. This second Samuel was born on January 26, 1714, the same birthday as his father. It is evident from the over 20 public offices he held, this second Samuel Smith, throughout his life that he was an educated and well-respected man in the community. Samuel II, that's not his name, that's just what I'm going to call him for this episode. Samuel II was active during the Revolutionary War, which didn't start until he was 62 years old. During the war, he was known as Captain Samuel Smith and later died on November 14, 1785, at age 71, after the War of Independence but before the Constitution was written. Samuel II had a son named Asael, and I'm not sure the correct pronunciation of this name, but please don't go look it up on Google. That's all I'm going to say about that. Okay, so Asael Smith was the son of Samuel II and was born on March 7, 1744, and was also active in the Revolutionary War, but with much less distinction than his father. Quote, on the death of his father, Samuel Smith, Asael returned to the old family homestead at Topsfield, which he had inherited. At Topsfield, Asael was made to feel the pressure of sectarian intolerance. It is evident that he had a strong inclination himself toward that system of doctrine known as universalism, the belief that all souls will finally be saved, that good will finally triumph universally and permanently. Close quote. A general teaching and feeling that would later find a home in the teachings of his grandson as well, the grandson being Joseph Smith the prophet. A sale also preached the idea that men should be free to worship God according to the dictate of their own conscience. This is another family saying that Joseph would later be inspired to adopt into his religious teachings. Although the Constitution gave men this liberty, it was still a very hotly contested topic in the brand new country. Many religious men of the time wanted to mandate certain religions as state religions, and to force men to believe the way they did, and pay church taxes. I feel the church taxes was the biggest push in trying to organize a state religion. This is one of the primary reasons that religion is the first topic brought up in the Bill of Rights. This freedom of thought had long been the feeling of those in New England, and so when a sale was confronted with such strong antagonism to join whatever church came calling that day, he refused and held to his own beliefs. Good for him. This Asale Smith not only argued against all the preachers that came to his house, but he also harbored a Quaker that was being ran off by the other people in the community. Many Quaker beliefs are similar to those of the Mormon church, and the most obvious being a light in every person or that of God in everyone. This is an obvious example of the Mormon teachings of the light of Christ, or the Spirit of God being in everyone born into the world. The modern teaching is that Christ is the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Quote, this enlightenment is administered to all men through the Spirit of Christ, or the Spirit of the Lord, or the light of truth, or the light of Christ, all of which expressions are synonymous. This Spirit fills the immensity of space, is in all things, and is not to be confused with the personage of Spirit known as the Holy Ghost. Close quote. This inward light, as the Quakers called it, performed the function of, quote, making us conscious of our sins forgives us, and gives us strength and the will to overcome them. And it teaches us the difference between right and wrong, truth and falseness, good and evil. 
close quote. And that definition and explanation come from the Quaker catechisms, not the LDS sources. When a sail let the Quaker man into his house and sheltered him, he outraged the community so much that he eventually had to move. Here he cleared a farm with his children and eventually died on October 31, 1830. Up to the time of his death, a sail preached the universal doctrine and, quote, his grandson, George A. Smith, remembers him writing choirs of papers on the doctrines of universal restoration, close quote. This means that he was old enough to see his grandson, Joseph Jr., found and grow a religious movement of his own, but he never joined it himself, instead following the teachings of John Murray. He would be the father of eleven children, one of whom he named Joseph. This was not Joseph the prophet, but instead was the father of the prophet. This Joseph Smith was born on July 12, 1771. Together, the family cleared a forest and Joseph took over in a half-share system where he would raise and tend the crops while the others from his family would continue to clear other parts of forest until eventually everyone had a farm of their own. While thus employed, he became acquainted with and eventually married to a local woman named Lucy Mack on January 24, 1796. So that's an important date. The parents of Joseph the prophet were married on January 24, 1796. Joseph Sr. cultivated this farm for six years before hearing about the huge profits being made in growing and exporting ginseng root. Locals would raise the plant and crystallize the root before sending it to China, where it was believed to have medicinal benefits. Joseph invested everything he had into the growing of this plant, and evidently it grew a very large and high-quality product, because when he went to sell it, he turned down an offer of $3,000, which was a huge amount of money at the time. But Joseph Sr. wanted to ship it to China himself and exclude the middleman, and that's why he turned down the $3,000. He contracted to ship his product with a man named Mr. Stevens, whose son allegedly stole all the profits from the venture, thereby leaving the Smiths destitute and broke. Not only had Joseph Smith Sr. claimed to have been blatantly robbed by the son of Mr. Stevens, but he had also raised a very large debt on the presumption that his return on the ginseng route would allow him to pay them all off. So when it didn't return, he was in a real bind with over $1,800 in debt, an enormous sum of money in that time era. To put it into perspective, the average weekly income for someone who worked a 60-hour week in 1900, nearly 100 years after Joseph Smith Sr., was $13 or $675 a year. Luckily, Lucy had money that she received from her dowry, and they used this $1,000 to abate the debt collectors. To make up the rest of the debt, they sold all of their household goods. And I will have this story in a more complete text in the supplemental episode, but the details are not super important for the topic today. But it is a very interesting story, one that really changed the lives of Lucy and Joseph and affected their children for generations. After this debacle, the young couple moved to the city of Sharon, Vermont. Here they settled down to once again try their luck in life. Then, two days before Christmas, on December 23, 1805, in the peaceful Green Mountains of Vermont, in the White River Valley, a boy was born who the world came to know as Joseph Smith, Jr. But before we get into the early life of Joseph, Jr., let's go back and learn about his family on his mother's side. The Mack family is believed to have come from Scotland in 1680, 
but the exact origins and the original name of the family are not known. Again, more modern research might have revealed more about them, but I don't have any information, and it's so far back in their ancestry that it doesn't really make a difference to our story. But many believed they were escaping religious persecutions in Scotland, and that's why when they moved to the New World, they dropped their full last name and kept only the Mac, a part of the name which is still very common in that area of the world. Solomon Mac was born in Lyme, Connecticut on September 15, 1732. He was only four years old when the family apparently lost its fortune and good name. Solomon served King George II in the French and Indian War until being discharged at Crown Point in the spring of 1759. He had served in the army for four years and with the money he earned and saved, he bought a piece of land. In this purchase contract, he agreed to build several log cabins. However, early in the summer of that year, he cut his leg pretty badly. I can't find out exactly what happened or the situation and extent of his wounds, but it must have been pretty bad. He wasn't able to walk and he had to hire somebody else to build the cabins for him, but the person ran off with the money and was never seen again. Because of this sudden loss of fortunes, the family again moved, this time to Marlow, New Hampshire. Solomon described it as a desolate place with only four other family members within 40 miles. Solomon was married to an educated woman named Lydia Gates. Together they had eight children. One of them was named Lucy Mack and was the mother of Joseph Smith the prophet. Lydia was evidently a pious woman who taught her children to pray morning and night and to have respect for deity. When the revolution rolled around in America, Solomon and two of his sons, Jason and Stephen, joined the army and were privateers under Captain Havens. I will have more about this family in a supplemental as well because they are also interesting but also not super applicable here. Solomon was like most of his family in that he was unlucky with money. His son Stephen, on the other hand, was a very industrious person and when he died, he left his family a fortune that was massive for the time, $50,000. Other than that, it seems like everyone in his family, from his ancestors to the prophet himself, were not very good with money and lived somewhat broke their entire lives with only sporadic stretches of wealth. Two of Lucy's sisters, Lovina and Lovisa, both died in their youth, and I think I'm pronouncing those names correctly, but again, I don't know. These two were both of a deeply religious nature and they had some experience in spiritual manifestations and bodily healings. Both of these women died years before the birth of Joseph the prophet and show an example of revelations and spiritual manifestations in the family tree of the future prophet. This could possibly be why his family was so open to the idea of him receiving revelations himself. Both of his parents and his paternal and maternal, maternal grandfathers had spiritual experiences and both of Joseph's parents received revelations before the birth of the future prophet. So it must have come as no surprise when another family member proclaimed to have the same type of revelation. Only this time, the person receiving the revelation would take it much further and push his teachings far more than anyone else in the family ever dared to try before. But it was commandment, and fortune favors the bold. Many people accused the Smiths of being credulous, and the dictionary says credulous means to be willing to believe or trust too readily especially without proper or adequate evidence or gullible. B. H. Roberts, in his seminal work, 
comprehensive history of the church says this, quote, Yes, the prophet's ancestors were credulous in that some of them believed that they were healed of bodily ailments by the power of faith in God. Others had dreams, as their neighbors had, that they could refer to no other than the spiritual forces of this world's God. In common with their neighbors, they lived in a spiritual world as well as in a material one. They experienced much that they could not understand. And after the manner of the times and locality in which they lived, they attributed the phenomena of this spiritual world to God or Satan, the names that stood for them to be good and evil forces. It may be admitted that some of them believed in fortune-telling, in warlocks and witches, though to their credit, be it said, they are not found among those who burned the witches, except for Samuel Smith the first one, son of Robert Smith, or who oppressed others for their religious opinions or for the lack of religious convictions. All this may be admitted. Indeed, it is scarcely conceivable how one could live in New England in those years and not have shared in such belief. To be credulous in such things was to be normal people." Close quote. The fact that it was so common in the time to have spiritual manifestations and revelations lends itself to dismissing the claims of the Prophet Joseph instead of building them up. So being credulous or gullible of spiritual gifts was the way everyone was back then, and we will get into some of the other spiritual beliefs of the time as well in just a minute. Solomon Mack had a daughter, Lucy, whom we've already discussed briefly. She was his last child and was born on July 8, 1775, in Gilsum, New Hampshire. But before we discuss Joseph the prophet and who he was, I think it is very necessary to go back and look at the setting of his life. Not only should we look at the life of Joseph Smith and the religious movement he founded, but we also need to be certain to learn about the time period he lived in as well. What was going on in the area of the world he was born in? And what were the teachings common to the area where he was raised as a child? Joseph Smith Jr. himself has said that there were many religious quarrels in the area. In fact, between 1814 and 1830, the Methodist Church would split four ways and go from one church into four. The Baptists would also split into many sects, including Reformed Baptists, Hard Shell Baptists, Free Will Baptists, Seventh Day Baptists, Footwashers, and others. There were the so called Pilgrims in Woodstock, Vermont, led by a man named Isaac Bullard, who wore no clothing but a bearskin girdle and his beard. If you didn't know this, Christ was also reincarnated at this time into the person of Anne Lee, the famous mother of the Shaker religion. Her religion flourished and spread widely. The celibate communist community she established are the same people who invented the famous Shaker-style cabinets and furniture so prevalent in today's culture. They would often host dances and gatherings that the entire community was invited to. It was around 30 miles from the Smith Farm, and some people wonder if Joseph Smith Jr. ever attended any of their dances. If he did, he could have only been horrified when he saw them flailing on the floor like they were possessed of the devil himself, while saying that they were full of the good spirit. And in this mass hysteria of religious innovation, many people began to preach their own gospels. People in the church often learn about Joseph's childhood, and they always quote the words he wrote himself later, quote, Sometime in the second year after our removal to Manchester, there was, in the place where we lived, an unusual excitement on the subject of religion. It commenced with the Methodists, but soon became general among all sects in that region of country. 
Indeed, the whole district of country seemed affected by it, and great multitudes united themselves to the different religious parties, which created no small stir and division amongst the people, some crying low here and low there. Some were contending for the Methodist faith, some for the Presbyterian, and some for the Baptists. Close quote. This religious confusion in the area had everyone on their guard all the time. Imagine if you didn't believe any of the religions that were springing up and were constantly harassed by members and preachers alike to join their sect or die an unrepentant life and burn in hell forever. That was how people would preach their gospels. Life carried on as normal in that people had to still raise their farms and families in the middle of all this craziness. Joseph himself gives a good description of the confusion and contention in the area at the time of his childhood. He said, quote, For notwithstanding the great love which the converts to the different faiths expressed at the time of their conversion, and the great zeal manifested by the respective clergy, who were active in getting up and promoting this extraordinary scene of religious feeling, in order to have everybody converted, as they were pleased to call it, let them join what sect they pleased. Yet when the converts began to file off, some to one party and some to another, it was seen that the seemingly good feelings of both the priest and the converts were more pretended than real, for a scene of great confusion and bad feeling ensued. Priests contending against priest, convert against convert, so that all their good feelings, one for another, if they ever had any, were entirely lost in a strife of words and contest about opinions." Close quote. His calling coincided with the Second Great Awakening, and that was happening in his area and was started around 1790, but really got ramped up between 1800 and 1820, and it finally faded away and died off a couple of years later. The reason for this awakening was the recent liberation of religious thought in this newly formed country. Joseph Smith was born in 1805, only 27 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence from England and only 18 years after the Constitution of the newly formed United States had issued the following law into effect. It was the First Amendment, and it said in part, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, close quote. I think most people listening to this podcast will know that law. Once this law was put in place and given the power of the federal government to back up the freedoms of religious beliefs, People from all over the area of the 13 new states began to either change their former beliefs, discard them altogether, or change them to suit their needs. The main instigators of the Second Great Awakening were those Protestant church leaders who, now that the shackles were thrown off, wanted to cast off the old European system of religious beliefs. The main reason they began to reform is because they felt like they would still be controlled by the religious leaders in Europe if they did not. So in order to break free from religious mind control of the religions of the old world, they went crazy with an absolute abundance of new religions. Some, like the Methodists and Baptists, we've already talked about and how much they splintered and formed new sects. But some religions we haven't talked about yet. Many religious leaders who are now historically well-known religious names came from this area of the country and this era of new thought. Henry Ward Beecher, whose father, Lyman Beecher, was a Calvinist. And he was one of the best-known evangelists from this time period and a leader in the congregational movement. Jemima Wilkinson was also from this time period and professed to be a prophet. After being extremely sick, she claims to have died and returned to life as a prophet. 
possibly in competition for all the other prophets in the area at the time. One thing about Jemima is that when she came back from death as a prophet, she was neither male nor female. And I guess nobody ever checked, so they continued to follow her. One thing about Jemima is that she was a Quaker and formed her own religion in a similar manner to Joseph Smith. She preached very strict sexual abstinence, as most religions in the area did as well. And it was an idea that the Puritans carried into America very early in its history, and that most other religions taught as well. Joseph undoubtedly had heard about her and the impact she had on people. She had an assistant she called the prophet Elijah, and he would tie a girdle as tightly as possible around his waist until his stomach bulged out and gave him revelations. You've probably done something similar in high school where you can have a, somebody choke you out until you pass out. It's the same kind of thing, and it works. You hallucinate. Uh, there are many other ways of doing this, but, I mean, it's just not important right now, so we're going to move on. In this time, exploration beyond the Appalachian Mountains was limited. Meriwether Lewis and William Clark went on their famous exploration in the year 1804, just one year before Joseph Smith was born. Most people who lived in the United States at this time still lived near the seashore or within a few days' journey from the Atlantic Ocean. Most had not crossed the mountains into the western frontier, and this frontier is considered modern-day East Coast, and it's kind of hard for us to imagine these days, but the United States only extended several hundred miles into the Atlantic seaboard. Many of the people who were moving west at the same time as Joseph Smith's family were illiterate or had not chosen a faith to follow. Because of this, the traveling preacher, evangelist, and circuit riders began to grow sharply in popularity. Palmyra, where Joseph's family finally ended up, was so hotly inebriated with religious revivalism that it was even called the Burnt Over District. They called it this because of the religious excitements and debates grew so strong that it burned the excitement right out of people until they were tired of listening to the debates and were burned out spiritually. All of this confusion was not lessened by the fact that many of the sects would receive spirits and fall into trances, oftentimes with violent physical convulsions that were attended with unintelligible screams, howls, and barking. Crawling on all fours and acting like an animal was not uncommon. Stories of people floating through the air and calling for demons to depart were all commonplace in the Second Great Awakening as it swept the far western frontiers of the new country. If you haven't heard any of the strange spiritual occurrences of this time period, a good podcast to introduce them to you in an easy way is Lore, produced by Aaron Menke. And that was not a paid promotion, it's just I like that podcast, so I'm going to mention it. One preacher of this time wrote, quote, Thousands of tongues with the sound of hallelujah seemed to run through infinite space, while hundreds of people lay prostrate on the ground, crying for mercy. Oh, my dear brother, had you been there to see the convulsed limbs, the apparent lifeless bodies, you would have been constrained to cry out as I was obliged to do, the gods are among this people, close quote. Kentucky, with its similar feeling of being a far western frontier, was hit by the same intensity of religious teachings at the beginning of the 19th century. One of the greatest known American theologians came from this time period, and area, and his name was Jonathan Edwards. And if you haven't heard anything about him, go do a Google search on his name and teachings. Jonathan Edwards, he's a very interesting person. 
Many of the preachers and revivalists from the early 1800s America set up their own secluded communities with their followers. Most of these communities followed some sort of communist way of living, depending on the community, to grow and support each other until all the members of the society were equal. Nearly all of these communities failed, but a clear example of one of them that I can think of that succeeded until modern times are the Amish and their peculiar way of life. For some reason, the Amish were able to pull off the religious communal living arrangement that so many tried. Even Joseph Smith himself would follow their example and set up his own commune. This was called the Law of Consecration. But in the early history of the United States, Solomon Mack, grandfather of Joseph Jr., quote, bought a tract of land and allowed 30 families to settle on it with him as spiritual caretaker and teacher to these families, supervising their temporal labors as well as ministering to their spiritual comfort, close quote. So not only were communist-style communities all around the Smith family area, but he had relatives who had done the same thing and set up their own. One man who was, for a time, successful in setting up a commune was named Amos Bronson Alcott. He didn't consider himself a prophet, but instead preached what he perceived to be the truth from the Bible in common sense. His movement was called Transcendentalism. He also talked extensively about the idea that learning is not an accumulation of facts, but rather a development of a reflective state of mind. This is one idea that I think we must look into in life, and something that I believe is very healthy in all aspects. Think about things. Don't just accept them at face value. I think we need to challenge people for the veracity of their ideas and not the person putting forth the ideas. If an idea works, it shouldn't matter who it comes from. Sort of like discovering if things are true using the scientific method instead of just assuming based on biases and emotions. Other prophets of the same time period as Joseph Smith include Joseph C. Dilks. D-Y-L-K-S. He was known as the Leatherwood God. He proclaimed his messianic mission in the early settlement of Ohio. He said he was here to establish a Christian community, just like everybody else, and usher in the millennial reign of the Messiah, another teaching that everyone else taught as well. He also claimed that his religion, the one true and restored religion, would never again vanish from the earth, a teaching very similar to that of Joseph Smith Jr. This came into stark contrast, however, with a man named William Miller, who was a Baptist preacher who claimed that in the 1840s Christ would return to reign. When this failed to materialize, his adherents splintered off and formed many other religions you probably have heard of, including Advent Christian and Seventh-day Adventists. After he worked out the new calculation several times to predict the coming of the Messiah for the second coming, he eventually gave up, but not after his followers continued to splinter off and separate into even more different sects. John Humphrey Noyes N-O-Y-E-S, preached that the millennium had already begun, and he built up yet another communist society based on biblical teachings. He also preached free love and the studying of science. It's interesting to me how so many people in that time period set up communist communities based on biblical teachings, and how today most religions are extremely anti-communism. I don't know why that is, or what happened to shift religious ideology, but it's the way it is. 
Many of the self-proclaimed prophets were eventually either ran out of town or simply forgotten. While some of them are still remembered and their religious beliefs are still around today, most of the names associated with building those religions are lost to most ears today. There is one person, though, that came out on top and is still to this day has a strong presence in the culture of our time, and that is Joseph Smith, father and founder of Mormonism. Even Joseph's own uncle, Jason Mack, became a traveling preacher and, quote, by the end of his life was practicing faith healings and holding meetings day and night from place to place. He became a religious seeker before he was 16, pursuing the spiritual gifts of early Christianity outside of established churches, close quote. So that is a basic overview of the family tree and also the crazy times in which he lived. The Second Great Awakening was in full swing and the Smith family was active in the movement just as much as most other families were. So now let's go back to one of the first things that we talked about and discuss the doubts that people threw onto the family and see what we can take away from them. First, that the family was restless and constantly move, moving around like the Ramas or vagabonds of Europe. This doesn't seem to be founded in too many good ideas because not only were these frontier times, but also because he had several family members on both sides of his family that were very successful in business and civic affairs. I will have more about that in the supplemental episode 1.1 as well. So to me, this is not a convincing argument against the prophet at all. Lots of people moved in that time period, and just because people move doesn't mean that they're crazy. The second argument that was given was that they were a family of vision that had told fantastic stories about their communications with the spirit world and God. This argument is a little bit harder to deny and brush off because many people in his family either held very strong religious beliefs or they came out and openly talked about their visions and manifestations. And much of this was before Joseph was even born. Both Lovisa and Lovina, older sisters of Lucy Mack and aunts to the prophet Joseph, had claimed to receive revelations and manifestations. Both parents of Joseph had received spiritual communications before the birth of Joseph Jr., and his grandfather never joined his church but instead preached universalism all his life and was active in religion in that way. Joseph Jr.'s uncle Jason was a prodigious preacher and healer in his own church. Not only were many of his family members active in religion before he was born, but also so much of revelations, healings, visions, manifestations, and every other form of communication with God were so prevalent at the time that I imagine when Joseph first presented his own revelation and vision that most people probably ignored him at first without even thinking twice about it. They only started persecuting him and chasing after him when he kept preaching the same thing and told everyone they were all wrong. This was something that would always set off religious teachers of the time. So to act like Joseph was special in this way, that he was persecuted more than others, seems to be a misunderstanding of the place and time in which he lived. Think of our political atmosphere today. If you say something contrary to someone else, you are labeled as a bigot and an ignorant person. And it was no different back then. People were prideful even then, and they haven't really changed much. If you say something people don't like, they try to shut you down and accuse you of being all sorts of things. And it was the same in that time period. To me, though, this just seems like it was on par for the time. Many people had acted like they had 
received visions and seen angels, spoke in tongues, gave blessings, healed the sick, raised the dead, and began their own religions. But Joseph would have never been important to American history had he only talked about the one vision. The third argument was that they were terrible with money and that therefore Joseph was doing this for financial gain. So far in the story, we haven't gotten anywhere in the preachings of Joseph Smith, so obviously we can't really touch too much on this topic yet. But it is safe to say, though, that his parents didn't have a lot of money when he was born, and he lived not a terribly poor life as a child, but never had as much as others did. If there was a lower, middle, and upper class back then, as there are today, I would imagine his family being lower middle class not living in abject poverty, but also not having much excess. When thinking about his history, though, you can judge it for yourself when you read Doctrine and Covenants. Look and see if this claim of this mentality of wanting to break out of poverty had a large impact on his teachings or not. So to end today's episode, I'll just say that after Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy Mack had been married for nine years and given birth to four children, their fifth child, Joseph Smith Jr., was born on December 23, 1805, and it was a time of mass religious movements, and Joseph would get caught up in the spiritual feelings of the day just as much as everyone else. And we all know that this religious excitement is what led him to seek God in the first place. He would have a larger effect than most people during the Second Great Awakening could ever dream of having. And next episode will be about the childhood of the prophet, from boyhood up until before his first vision. I'm not sure we will even get into the first vision for several more episodes if we talk about everything. Next episode, we will talk about Joseph Smith and his at-home family life before the first vision ever took place. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.